Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. The rabbis of the Talmud define a hero as one who conquers his inclination. In Hebrew, it reads, Ezehu Gudbor, who is a hero? It seems that the rabbis thought that a hero was one of great internal strength, of self-control rather than great physical strength. For the rabbis, that was true heroism. Maimonides, the great sage of the 11th century, distinguishes between two types of heroes, the saint, the chassid, the sage, the hacham. These perspectives on heroism make sense in terms of personal virtue, but not necessarily in terms of social change, and certainly fly in the face of antiquity where heroes were usually, the word hero was usually assigned to those who had died in the cause of freedom or the preservation of a city-state's reputation. Uh, Greek mythology is filled with stories about the hero who dies to ensure that Sparta or Athens was uh, saved from its enemies. Jewish heroes commit themselves to aiding society's most vulnerable members in ways that create systematic and sustainable impact. The humble leader in Jewish tradition doesn't shy away from bold public leadership that changes the world and to quote the American center, to reframe the quote from the American senator and presidential candidate Barry Goldwater, Moderation in the defense of justice is no virtue, but serves with right motives in a way that also builds up others. So who is a Jewish hero? Recently, a Jewish museum uh, created an entire um, exhibit that they don't de- dedicated to a listing of 100 people who they thought were Jewish heroes. Some were uh, well-known athletes like Olympic swimmer uh, Mark Spitz or the baseball player Sandy Koufax or the Israeli basketball player Tal Brody. Some heroes listed were scientists like Albert Einstein and Rosalind Franklin or Eldad Hadani or Jonas Salk. Of course, in the same exhibit, Jewish heroes were identified in cultural areas like the uh, Israeli-Canadian architect Moshe Safdi, or Patrick Modano, or Woody Allen, um, Bob Dylan, Frank Gehry, again an architect, Ralph Lauren, the clothing designer, from the film world, Steven Spielberg, or from the world of comics, Stan Lee or Jerry Seinfeld, even Gustav Mahler had a Jewish origin, Felix Mendelssohn. You can see that the list goes on and on uh, in the cultural area. And certainly there were revolutionary thinkers like Baruch Spinoza, Theodor Herzl, 
Rosa Luxemburg, the great um, feminist leader of the socialist labor movement in the United States, Betty Friedan, Leon Trotsky, the U.S. Supreme Court Judge uh, Louis Brandeis, and of course there were other uh, courageous individuals like Alfred Dreyfus, Mickey Marcus, who was an American that joined the Israeli army during the... uh, War for Independence. Many, many others are listed in this exhibit. So who is a Jewish hero? I could take the position that anybody who does something great is a Jewish hero. But does that really give you a sense of how Judaism values the heroic? So I want to share with you this morning the stories of three women who I think exemplify the traditional understanding of heroism in Judaism. The first story that I want to share with you is Michal, one of the most fascinating women in the Hebrew Bible is Michal, the daughter of Saul. She is perhaps one of the most romantic of all the biblical heroines, both because of the strange situation in which she found herself and because of her tragic and some would say heroic fate. At the same time, the biblical text shows us a Michal who was almost totally passive, who spoke and acted very little for herself. Our glimpses of her in the biblical text are fragmentary as though we are peeping at her through the cracks in the shutters, through the rents and tears of the fabric of family life, her family life, the King Saul, and the inner palace and her private life there. The few words Michal utters are important, providing an understanding of her character. The power of the biblical account lies in a short, sharp line, sketches of the people and events in question. On the whole, we are told nothing of the thoughts of the heroes in the text. There are no complex or complicated dialogues, no character buildup in the Hebrew text. From this point of view, the biblical narrative is in marked contrast to Greek drama and Greek storytelling. The latter, in almost all its forms, rests largely on monologues in which the heroes explain their experiences and feelings. When the monologue does not suffice, the chorus fills in the gaps of the story and carries the narrative forward. Thus, the Greek author has the opportunity to express his own educational, moral, and philosophical ideas. Yet in the Torah, in the books of prophets, and in the writings, we find almost none of these literary devices. The narrative is often strikingly clear and provides us with true-to-life, multidimensional figures. Thus, we discover Michal, Saul's daughter, in three different situations, each one of which shows us a different aspect of her personality and character. The combination of these three pictures, the three situations, enables us to reconstruct not only the events that characterize each one, but also to understand the heroic personalities involved. Michal is first introduced to the reader of the text with the words, and Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. 1 Samuel chapter 18, 20. Hinting at a story 
a first love. We next meet her when after David's escape from Saul, she is given to another man, Palti ben Leish, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 44. And in the third story, we witness a short conversation, a very unpleasant scene between David and Michal in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 20 to 23, in which she comments on the way he dances. Taken in isolation, none of these three brief passages presents a full picture of Saul's daughter. But together they give us a general portrait of relationships, a portrait that illuminates and reveals aspects of David's character, the most important character in this narrative, as much as it does of those of Michal. One point that is perhaps crucial to Michal's personality and for understanding the relationship between she and David is actually linked to the relationship between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Saul and Michal were truly representative of the image and essence of their whole tribe with all its powers and advantages and its concomitant weaknesses. The most marked facet of Michal's character is that she is an aristocrat, a princess, She was the daughter of the nobility, not only because her father was king, but because her whole family was noble. It was a nobility that had beauty and elegance along with weaknesses. Such aristocratic figures may often include something anemic, a certain inability to adapt to awkward situations. We often find in these aristocratic situations passivity instead of action silence when there should be speech, and thoughtless chatter when there should be silence. In contrast to these reserved people, some of whom like Jonathan, who were heroic and beautiful in body and soul, someone like David appeared. He was simpler, more earthy, undoubtedly of handsome appearance according to the text, and a hero of war, the archetype Greek hero. Very understandably, an attachment was formed, a first love involving the closeted young girl from the aristocratic family. Michael fell in love with the village hero. His simplicity or crudeness was not disturbing to her, but doubtless had a certain charm of its own. The same characteristics had had singular magic for many other young maidens in similar circumstances throughout history. Out of this attraction was born a great love. Michal, the daughter of Saul, loved David. A special relationship was created between them, and even Michal, never over-talkative in the text, showed it, so that Saul, for all his introversion, sensed what was going on. From this first contact, Michal and David were bound by a tie of love that remained constant, despite all the problems that followed. It remained steadfast in the face of the pressures later created by Saul and was unshaken by the triangle of relations between Saul and David and her brother Jonathan. Michal did not often act of her own accord, yet until her last moments with David, she remained loyal, even more loyal than to her parents, to him. 
In fact, she was even prepared to betray her, betray her father for David's sake, as when she tricked Saul by smuggling David out of the house to enable him to escape Saul's anger. The situation is reminiscent not only from the point of view of the plot of the relationship between Rachel and Laban in Genesis, but surprisingly, not, uh, but perhaps not surprisingly, since Michal of the tribe of Benjamin was a direct descendant of Rachel. The story of David's escape in 1 Samuel 19 contains a key word, identical to one in the story of Laban's pursuit of Jacob and the theft of the household images as told in Genesis 31-34. These two instances are the only references in the Torah to household or family idols. In both cases, they are treated as a means of cheating the father. In both cases, the inner motive is similar. The bond with the man, the new hero in the life of the young maiden, is so deep that it apparently erases all other familial ties. This special bond between David and Michal remains to the end. In the next passage, the weakness of the arist aristocracy is disclosed. While in the first situation, we find a mutual attraction, the combination and pairing of beauty and heroism of the old nobility and the man of the people. In the second, we find Michal's surrender and passivity when given to another man. With David on the lamb from her father, Saul, she was given away to Palti ben Leish, a man who was possibly a friend of the family of the house of Saul. She moved with him across the Jordan, where she remained with him for many years. The ancient rabbis writing in the Talmud tell us several things about Palti ben Leish, who was apparently closer to Saul's house than was David, and about his attitude to Machal. However, if we look at Machal herself, we are given a glimpse of her essential being by what she did not do. When Palti was forced to renounce Michal, it is said that he went, uh, and I quote from 2 Samuel 3, along with her weeping behind her. But Michal did not cry. In a way, it seems as if she had lost her active personality in this grace crisis, acting no longer as a human being, but as an object, a chattel. She was taken and returned by her husband in silence. Now, we can, from our perspective, imagine Michal's emotional crisis in different ways, but a crisis it surely was. Her heart was broken. She had been handed over to another man whom she did not love, and the impression is somehow created that she was no longer capable of caring for everyone, not even David. The parting from David, which she believed to be final, and her being handed over to Palti ben Leish broke her spirit until she reached the point of total detachment. This emotional detachment was partly an expression of her aristocratic nature. The nobility was superior. They did not make scenes or have stormy fights in public, nor did they destroy social structures. Michal did not rebel. She did not try to escape from the entanglement by some extreme means such as suicide, as did her father Saul at the end of his days. She could protest her lot, but instead she broke, and what remained was the outer shell of a personality from which the heart was missing. 
From this point on in the story, Machal responded to everything that happened with total passivity and the passivity of one who is past caring. She continued to function, to fulfill her role in accordance with her status, and she did this right to the end of her life. But inwardly, something had snapped. Her personality was no longer what it was, and she was concerned only with the externals of behavior. The Michal of the first meeting with David was not the same woman who was returned to him several years later. She had gone, undergone not so much a personality change as a kind of death, death of the spirit. The heart, the emotion, the excitement had gone out of this woman, and what remained was the shell, an aristocrat, and nothing more. All this is sharply expressed in the final episode of the Michal-David relationship, which reveals a clash between two cultures as well as between two totally different individuals. It was a clash between David, so earthy, passionate, enthusiastic, and his first love, Michal, now reserved, introverted, and deeply concerned with propriety. Michal's rebuke to David is a key to her whole personality. She neither saw saw nor related to the spiritual significance of bringing the Aron HaKodesh, the Ark of the Covenant, to Jerusalem. She knew that it was an important celebration, and what bothered her on this occasion was the fact that David had exposed himself when dancing in front of the maidservants. How could this great man do such a thing? The ancient rabbinic sages have already pointed out the marvelous scene of modesty in Saul's family, the way in which he went deep, deep into the cave when he wished to cover his feet. That same horror of nakedness, which is characteristic of all Semitic cultures, was marked in Saul in his personal relations as in his public behavior. He had a fear of exposing himself, the text tells us, hence the covering up the layer upon layer of garments and clothing. In contrast to this modesty and circumspection, so characteristic of the aristocracy and the nobility everywhere at all periods of ancient history, we find David. David did not stop to consider how he was dancing, how he was behaving, how he appeared to others. For Michal, the fact of exposure was less important than the humiliation as she saw it of cheapening himself before the masses, of descending to their level. She was injured by the fact that David did not treat his throne with respect, that he had no sense of majesty for kingship, of being divinely chosen to lead. She was the daughter of the nobility, contrasted with the man who actually regarded as simple, as a bore, as one who may have taken up the reins of government, but not the grandeur of the kingship. David, for his part, was no less sharp in his response to Michal, and his sharpness is illuminating. He juxtaposed these contrasting elements, comparing his election as king not necessarily with Michal, but what she represented, the house of Saul, her father. David claimed that the choice of God had fallen rather on someone like him, a man who expressed real sensitivity, the true emotions of the heart, the excitement, the flexibility to stand firm against difficulties and not break. At the same time, he was the man who could rejoice, 
who could express his joy and reveal himself. The sages say that the kingship of the house of Saul did not continue because he had no fault, finds echo in the relations between David and Michal. Outwardly, she was flawless, cold, and noble, the ideal woman viewed from afar. Perhaps those of you who have been watching the TV show on Netflix called The Crown would hear the resonance of these kinds of words, flawless, cold, and outwardly perfect in relationship to Queen Elizabeth as she's portrayed in the TV show. David, in contrast, was passionate, fiery in everything he did, in his virtues and in his sins. He had his flaws and he had his failings, and he also had the strength to rise above them, much like Prince Philip is portrayed in the TV show. In this context of two opposing life views, the two personalities revealed, each in its own light. The contrast between them recalls not only the confusion of Michal's life, arising partly from her reserve and inhibition, but also from the tragic clash, the entanglement between this aristocratic woman and the simple man with whom she fell in love. Michal's heart was broken because David could never be wholly hers. He could never fit her notions of the perfect, and she could not accept him as he was. She could be happy neither with him nor without him. And yet what is most interesting is that she fits the definition of who is a hero perfectly. Who is a Jewish hero? One who controls their inner intentionality. And Michal does that, does she not? Throughout the entire three episodes that I've shared with you, Michal remains true to what she thinks is the imperative of who she is. You know, heroism is often seen to be in the eyes of the holder. Benjamin Disraeli, Prime Minister of England, wrote, to believe in the heroic makes heroes. If we believe that Michal's behavior was heroic, then she is, in fact, a hero. If she is able to rise above the situation and maintain her position as part of nobility, then that does make her somewhat heroic. Now, throughout Jewish history, not only Michal serves as an exemplar of heroism, but let me share with you some other notables in Jewish texts that give us an indication of how Jewish tradition understood heroism. Of course, we would begin with Moses. Moses, who was raised as a prince in Pharaoh's court, heroically demanded that his Jewish people be allowed to leave Egypt. As a youth, he killed a cruel taskmaster who was persecuting his people and was forced to flee to Ethiopia and later to Midian and, of course, stands up to Pharaoh, not for the benefit of himself, but for the benefit of his people. 
Shimshon in Hebrew, but known to most of us as Samson, was famous for his strength. He fought many battles against the Philistines, and as a Nazarite, he could not cut his hair, and so we think of him as he's portrayed to us in Judges 13, 16, as certainly heroic. Eventually, he killed himself and hundreds of Philistines by pulling down a Philistine temple. Samson fits the traditional model of heroism, dies for what he believes in. The best-known case of heroism is, of course, young David, Far before he is anointed as king, before he and Saul are chasing each other to kill one of the other, David, who killed the fearsome Philistine giant Goliath, and with just a slingshot, certainly might be known as heroic. The book of Tobias, not officially part of the Hebrew Bible, tells the story of Tobit, a pious Jew exiled to Nineveh in Assyria. Tobit selfishly obeys Jewish law by giving alms and burying the dead. Like Job before him, he suffered greatly, and in this case he was struck blind, regaining his sight after beseeching God to remove a curse on Sarah. He is heroic, as he's portrayed in the text. The book of Daniel reveals a Jewish sage of apocalyptic visions who was cast into the lion's den by one of Babylonian monarchs, Nebuchadnezzar, but survived through his great faith. A Jewish couple, Elimelech and Naomi, moved to the dangerous land of Moab. Their son, Mahon, married a Moabite, Ruth, after Mahlon and Elimelech died. Ruth insisted on accompanying Naomi um, back, gathered food for her, and adopted her faith. Impressed by her devotion, Boaz, Naomi's cousin, married her. Ruth's great-grandson was King David. Clearly, she was seen as a heroine in the text. All the prophets in the Hebrew text are known as heroic but fewer as heroic as Jeremiah, rejected by those he tried to save, King Joachim barred him from the temple. He warned of the impending fall of Jerusalem if Israel did not mend its ways, and of course he was correct. When the Syrian king Antiochus IV and his Jewish cohort, the Hellenized high priest Jason, tried to eradicate Jewish culture in Israel in 175 BCE, Matatiahu and his son Judah Maccabee fought a guerrilla campaign to rescue their people. This story of classical heroism is commemorated in the festival of Hanukkah. Ezehu Gibor, who is a hero in Jewish tradition? Well, Michal is called a hero because she maintains truth to herself. Shimshon, Samson, is a hero because he dies in the name of protecting the Israel people. Tobias, a pious Jew, is called a hero because he commits himself to that which resonated with the Jewish people, an affinity and commitment to God. The prophets are heroes because they spoke out against injustice, In Jewish tradition, you don't have to die to be a hero. 
You have to be true to yourself. You have to be true to the covenant. You have to be true to the God of Israel. What makes a Jewish hero? There's no singular formula for it, but it is one who questions the actions of those who are immoral, who is able to challenge authorities and transcend the fear in the face of injustice, and who is true to themselves. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you good morning and shalom. You can listen to a repeat of this show on a podcast, either on the CHRI website or on iTunes, wherever you uh, download your podcasts. Shalom. 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 Shalom.